Hello and welcome to this GI Connect podcast uh, on gastric cancer. My name is Sam Klempner. I'm a GI medical oncologist at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. And I'm joined by my colleague and uh, international gastric cancer leader, Dr. Lizzie Smith. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Lizzie Smith. I'm a GI medical oncologist in Oxford, United Kingdom. Thanks for the invitation to speak here. This podcast series consists of two episodes. In this episode, we will be discussing a patient case on metastatic gastric and gastroesophageal cancer. This podcast is an initiative of core to add and developed by GI Connect, a group of international experts working in the field of oncology. The podcast is supported by an independent educational grant from Bayer. The views expressed are the personal opinions of the experts. They do not necessarily represent the views of the experts' organizations or the rest of the GI Connect group. For expert disclosures on any conflict of interest, please visit the core to ed website. So I'm going to take us through a advanced case. This is a, a relatively recent case and hopefully will illustrate some points in the advanced setting. So. It's a young woman, 56-year-old woman presented with fatigue and anemia, uh, found to have a four-centimeter gastric fundus ulcer on endoscopy. Biopsy confirmed this is a moderately differentiated adenocarcinoma. Fit patient, really minimal uh, past medical history, just some baseline hypertension and glucose intolerance. Patient is anemic, family history, really non-contributory here, um, no GI cancers, no physical exam findings. Patient has diffuse lymphadenopathy above and below the diaphragm on um, baseline staging scans and and three liver lesions. So we have a patient with a de novo advanced gastric cancer. What more do you want to know specifically? What biomarkers do we absolutely need to know? And how are you approaching biomarker testing for the routine patient? So we have the biomarkers that are essential to have, and then we've got those that are nice to have. So for all of my first-line patients, most critical for me is MMR, then HER2, then PDL1. And all of those have an influence on treatment. The reason why I think MMR is the most important is because we cannot miss the opportunity to treat these patients with immune checkpoint inhibitors, either with or without chemotherapy, because they're quite likely to have an excellent response, even to monotherapy, and to have long-term survival with access to immune checkpoint inhibitors. So MMR number one. And so I usually prefer to test the IHC. It can We get the result back in, in a day or two. And so we have the information ready before we make a decision on treatment for the patient. HER2, an oldie but a goodie. We've been doing it for about 10 years now. And certainly in Europe, this is retaining eligibility for trastuzumab for HER2 positive patients. We don't yet have access to trastuzumab and pembrolizumab, as you do in the States, based on the results of Keynote 811, we need to wait for the overall survival data from that trial. And lastly, PDL1. So PDL1, we uh, test for eligibility for immune checkpoint inhibitors in Europe and the UK. Patients are required to have a CPS score of five or greater. That's a little unlike uh, the United States uh, and Asia, where patients with any PDL1 score may be treated. Although I gathered that you might choose not to treat patients with a CPS score of under five. Is that right? Yeah. So ASCO recently came out with sort of practice guidance, I guess, a little more geared toward U.S. practice patterns that I think is relatively aligned with EMA guided approaches. So clearly, um, the greater than five population are deriving the greater magnitude of benefit. And 
If it's greater than five, yes, clear the answer is yes. If it's totally negative, as in less than one, uh, we routinely do not offer checkpoint inhibitors. And in the one to four group, I think that there's a lot of variability and we could have a whole podcast about what antibody clone you use, what site you test, how do you interpret it? What do you do with a three? Is three really the same as a six? So this is really a, an individual discussion. And I'd say I've certainly used it in patients between, you know, one and four, and it's variable. I try to be consistent. Just out of curiosity, what test are you using for pd one at your institution? Interesting. So we are using 223C. I just moved institutions though. So uh, so I, pr- previously I switched from 223C to 288, although we have access to both. And the reason why I switched to 288, because data last year suggested that 288 might pick up a few more patients to be CPS high or checkpoint eligible than 232C. If I'm honest, based on my clinical practice, I haven't seen a whole lot of difference when that data emerged last year to suggest that 288 was more sensitive. I sent a bunch of patients back to be retested. And I did find one patient who came up as uh, checkpoint eligible based on that. But that could have been heterogeneity rather than the assay. So we don't we, we don't really know. I will say we could talk about this all day, couldn't we? But ultimately, I agree with you. If you'd asked me two years ago, I would have been totally, only CPS5 should be treated. But I've seen so much data on the variability of these assays now and interpathologist variability. I don't think we can say a CPS4 is not a CPS5. I think that's very difficult. So I think that we're going to need to work on this a little bit more in, in the next couple of years and understand where those gray areas are, because I think what we don't want to do is miss out on treating the patients who might be helped by immune checkpoint inhibitors. Just going to plug a trial that I'm doing at the EORTC then, where we're going to take a big cohort of patients and do a kind of blueprint study like was done in lung cancer, looking at uh, maybe 200 patients, pdl one scoring using the different assays and score those with it, with a large group of pathologists and understand where the challenges are and how we might move forward. So ask me again in a year, I might give you a different answer. I definitely will ask you again in a year. All right, let's make this a little bit more complicated because this might be the real world within the next months even. So imagine Zolbituximab is approved. What else are we going to need to know about this patient to potentially guide even another option? Okay, so Zolbituximab is a Cloud-18-2 monoclonal antibody. It's just demonstrated improvements in overall survival in two studies, so Spotlight and GLOW, that used Falfox and Capox variably in Cloud-18-2 positive tumors. So we're going to need to get working on those Cloud-18-2 IHC tests. So I think the cutoff in the trials was around 70 or 75% of cells being positive. Is that right, Sam? Yes, 75% the cutoff for GLOW and Spotlight, exactly. And that captures about 40% of patients, if I'm right. So we're going to have 40% of patients who are Cloud-18-2 positive and might benefit from Zolbituximab. We're going to have 30, 40% of patients who are PDL1 high, let's call it, and might benefit from immune checkpoint inhibitors. And so the question will be, what's the overlap? Is there one treatment which is better for the patients who are PDL1 high versus Cloud and 182 high? I don't think we have the answer for that, but I do remember that Kohai Shatara presented a little bit of data on the PDL1 versus Cloud and 182, didn't he? In, in, in Glow. Um, can you remember that? 
Yeah, I think it's a little bit tricky. Personally, I almost think this is like a new type of biomarker. This is really a like a lineage specific marker. You're kind of marking tumor cells, not so much defining a biology like HER2 or, or MSI high. So really interesting for the field, you know, kind of like trope two is, a, is like a lineage marker for just tumor cells itself. In the studies in the phase three trials, there was perhaps a lower than reported DPS high population. And it may have been that we get PDL1 results quite quickly, and therefore there was sort of a pre-selection against some of those patients, I think, to be determined. But from retrospective data, it almost looks like Claude and positivity and negativity sort of runs through every other biomarker subgroup at equal frequencies. And this sets up really interesting situation. Like you said, you know, we have a very prevalent biomarker at around 40%. 40% of HER2 positive patients are going to be Claude and positive. And then what are you going to do? And, and as you suggested about PDL1 as well. Certainly, the sort of obvious path forward is do the Keynote 811 strategy and combine the immunotherapy with the monoclonal antibody and chemo. And, and that's a strategy that is actively being pursued. Let's make this a case of exactly that scenario. So let's say you have a CPS3 and a Claudin 18.2 positive patient and you have all the tools available. Are you going to give the Claudin first in that scenario? And, and would you be different if it was, let's say, a CPS of greater than 10, where you know it's a very positive patient? Wow, you made that question too easy for me because <laughs> I can only treat patients with PD-1 inhibitors if their CPS score is five or greater. So if the patient has a CPS score of five or greater, I think that that is the group that benefits most from immune checkpoint inhibitors. So I would be comfortable treating them with an immune checkpoint inhibitor first. Although I do caveat that with the uh, median overall survival in, in uh, spotlight being better than we saw in any of the immune checkpoint inhibitor trials. But I think there are aspects to that that may not relate directly to zolbituximab. So I think that I would be satisfied if the CPS score was pretty high to go ahead with the uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor. But uh, perhaps if it was lower, so three or one, I, I think the jury's out. One thing that I would mention is that the uh, zolbituximab is very well tolerated. I know that there are some concerns around nausea, but certainly I treated a bunch of patients on, on one of those trials and we found the nausea quite manageable with NK1 antagonists and we use a lot of olanzapine. And so nausea, I think if you address it early on, dissipates fairly quickly. So it certainly wasn't a challenge for me for patients I treated on the study. I don't know what your direct experience was, Sam. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, like any new drug, a little bit of a learning curve similar to we had with, you know, TDXD. First few times you give it, you get a sense. But I agree. I think after a little bit of experience and playing around with, you know, perhaps interrupting the infusion, if the nausea was significant, we can get patients through this. And it's hard to ignore two phase three trials with survival benefit when we're picking therapies for our patients. So I agree. I think this is a is a manageable toxicity for patients, and otherwise the drug is is quite well tolerated. Let's say this patient gets fulfoxin, zolbituximab, and I'm projecting forward maybe six, 12 months of our clinical practice lives. So this patient gets fulfoxin, zolbituximab, and ultimately progresses after, let's say, seven, eight months, otherwise still remaining fit. How do you think we're going to think through second line? And are you going to biopsy and look at Claudin expression again, kind of like we do for HER2 sometimes? 
you raise a brilliant question. Just going back to what you said earlier, I totally agree that we're in a new era of biomarkers. So Cloudin, it's not an oncogene. We're not targeting it. It's a passenger on the gastric cancer cell. So we don't know whether we're going to get loss of the antigen over time. We don't know the mechanisms of resistance based on what we learned from HER2. Because you look at 10 years of failed HER2 studies of gastric cancer, and what we hadn't done was done a biopsy to see if the HER2 was there. So what we need to do, I think, is explore pretty quickly what the resistance mechanisms will be. What I would like to see and what I see coming is with Cloudin and with all of these targets, is that we should be doing repeat biopsies. I mean, breast cancer doctors have been doing this for years. And what is going to benefit patients most is sequential treatment. So especially with Cloudin, we've got a lot of very exciting drugs. We've got the antibodies they've got there first, and we're going to use those with chemo, possibly with IO, as you mentioned. But we've also got lovely ADCs, bispecific T-cell engagers, and then CAR-Ts, very exciting, very preliminary. But I think the patients are going to do best if we sequence these over the course of their treatment, But first of all, we need to understand if the target is still there. So I think what we need to do in future is make friends with our endoscopists, with our interventional uh, radiologists and discuss patients, why they benefit from biopsy. So this is going to be something that is going to be what we do in future. Yeah, I'm going to go back and get an IR fellowship so I can just do this. (laughs) (laughs) All we need is an ultrasound. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, I think you raise an important point that some of these protein markers are not really well suited to liquid tests. And so the the biopsy will remain uh, important. So maybe to close, I think the key themes that, that you mentioned and feel free to expand on are biomarker testing in the advanced setting, teasing apart the overlap, which I think is the task of all of us who do research in this field for the coming years. And then sounds like the good news message of more targets coming. Zolbituximab, we expect some approval. We have bimarituzumab, uh, an FGFR2-directed therapy, and, and many other subsets that will be coming forward in the hopefully near future. I don't know if you have any other messages you want to get across in the advanced setting. Esophageal and gastric cancer have always been difficult cancers to treat. And I think that we're on a kind of event horizon now where we've seen the availability of these new targets. We've seen really good data. We're starting to see good data for PD-1. We'll see the next generation of immune checkpoint inhibitors coming, cloud in 18-2, combining that with PD-1, FGF42B, next generation HER2 inhibitors. And then we've got our cellular therapy. So, you know, lung cancer. 10 years ago, the survival was less than a year for most patients, sadly. And now you've got 30% five-year survival. So I very much hope that we're heading in that direction. And it's going to be about participating in clinical trials, understanding the biopsies, and again, always focusing on the holistic needs of patients. With esophageal cancer, we can't get away from that. So nutrition and dealing with their symptoms. But I think that the future is looking bright. Yeah, well said. And uh, hopefully this was uh, educational for everybody listening. And I definitely look forward to the next time we meet in person and, and talk online. Thanks, Sam. We hope you found this podcast informative and enjoyable. If you haven't already listened to it, make sure you listen to the first episode where the experts discuss a patient with non-metastatic cancer. You can find this and podcasts on other topics on the Core to Add Medical Education channel. Also, don't forget to rate this episode on the Core to Add website 
and share our podcast with your colleagues and on social media. Thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Core2Ad Independent Medical Education. Please visit core2ad.com for more information.